High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, Star Wars fans, Angus fans, movie fans, fans of High School Slumber Party. This is, of course, High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic, whew, it's been too long, iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. But remember, school is still in session. We're in our super senior year, and we have some homework to talk about. This was your assignment, and I would like to see the results. It's been way too long slumbers since we've done an intro like this. I almost forgot how to do it. Of course, we have had some AP episodes along the way. So let's go over your regular homework, we'll say, even though the show has been regular lately. That is to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. And while you're there, leave us a positive review, a five-star rating. Also, tell a friend about High School Slumber Party. And of course, follow High School Slumber Party on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Oh yeah, and catch up on old episodes of High School Slumber Party. Once again, wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the AP episodes we've been doing lately. Uh, we got some exciting news coming along the pike for AP. And we have an exciting episode today. I feel like today's episode is sort of a crossover between AP and the regular High School Slumber Party feed. We, of course, are talking to director Patrick Reed Johnson. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The bell does not dismiss you. I dismiss you. And we're not getting dismissed until we talk to the said Patrick Reed Johnson here. We recorded this interview a couple of months ago for his awesome film, 52577. If you haven't watched it yet, please watch it. But I think if you are one of those who haven't seen it, after you listen to this interview with him, you're going to really 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 want to watch it it's on vod check it out there want to give a shout out to my guy ryan stick for putting me in touch with patrick this is such an awesome interview it goes into the film it goes into his life we also talk some angus stuff some angus breaking news i think on this podcast so definitely check that out and a tease for a hopeful future episode oh man i can't wait to share this one with you so let's do it pack your favorite jammies tell your mother you're sipping up brian's because we're about to get our party on class dismissed come on just tell me what's playing here star wars right star wars star wars When I was a kid, they used to show these short films before the feature called serials, and they weren't very good. In fact, they were actually kind of terrible in a wonderful sort of way because you could almost imagine the actors suddenly turning to look out at you and saying, look, we know you can tell we made these sets out of cardboard, and we know you can see the wires holding up our spaceships. But look how much fun we're having. And those stupid little films meant more to me than any big budget Hollywood extravaganza because they gave me hope Cut. that with a little allowance you okay no I'm not okay a little ingenuity and a little stolen time with my dad's old wind-up movie camera I could make movies too and I did boy did I how much do you want to be a director Patrick 
I want it more than anything I've ever wanted in my life. Hi. Are you, are you really sure about this? Do you need to be one? Then you might just make it. You really think so? If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Get out! So Patrick Reed Johnson, such an accomplished filmmaker. Honestly, I have, I have so many questions. I can't wait to talk about five twenty-five seventy. But like, that's kind of a hard movie to talk about without getting into your personal life because it feels just like your personal life. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. First question. Yeah. How much of what we see on screen is true? Well, like it says at the beginning, most of this is true. The rest is even truer. And that is true. Um <laughs> The weirder it is, the more preposterous and insane it seems, the truer it is, I promise you. It's three years worth of events collapsed into one. So that required connective tissue that wasn't real. That required ordering that might not be, or even locations that weren't exactly correct. But for example, once you get to Hollywood, everything that happened from from the time I land in Herb's office to the time I come home, is verbatim syllable for syllable what happened that's so amazing that's awesome i mean i, I had to ask because again such a, feels like such a personal story i mean off the bat i've had other people watch the movie they loved it and they had the same kind of question like you really saw a cut of star wars before the world like t- again the movie it's such a beautiful moment but i want to hear it from your voice like what the hell was that like man And it's funny because when I met Gary Kurtz for the first time in, gosh, I guess it was 1990. And I had just gotten my deal at Universal based on Space Invaders and Steven Spielberg picking it up uh, and and giving it to Disney and saying, release this. I met Gary. And of course, I was incredibly intimidated. But we were actually in competition for the rights to a sci-fi book uh, that we both wanted to do. And we said, well, why do we why should we be in competition? Let's Let's join forces, which was phenomenal. And then I made room in my new offices over at Universal for Gary to move in. And we became sort of partners in crime developing this project and several others. And I never told him for the first like year or two that I knew him about this adventure I'd been on in California when I was 15 years old. And one day we're out at lunch and I, I started pitching him this sort of American, well, my version of American graffiti for the 70s. It was called Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And it was just my high school experiences, but it didn't include the Star Wars. thing. Wow. <laughs> and, and he says, you know, I get it that you want to do your own American graffiti. I did mine. George did hit, you know, but we kind of did that. I'm not that interested because I didn't grow up in the same, you know, idiom. I don't have the same, you know, and. I said, well, there's one little extra piece that might make it a little more interesting. He goes, what's that? And then I related what happened to me when I met Herb Lightman and went out to Industrial Light and Magic. And, and he goes, well, wait, wait, <laughs> stand by. He goes, when did this happen? And I told him the date, March of 1977, you know, and he said, if that's accurate, you're the first person who didn't work on Star Wars to ever see it by months. And he, and he said, your fan won you know that's amazing okay you know and he goes that's the movie we should be making and i said well all right then so i started writing it but you know seeing it the way you know having seen the movie i saw it it was devoid it didn't have any john williams music it didn't have any ben burt sound effects it didn't have didn't have anything it had you know saw the arrows grease painted onto the film showing where the laser bolts would go you know um and you know the first shot there was no episode four a new hope it was just star wars there was no crawl and oh, wow. the oh, first yeah. shot was just a big blue screen and then all of a sudden this model silently goes you know overhead and we're like and he kept going and going and going and like, wow that's a really cool model what what's it doing you know i mean you could see like the grips outside the millennium falcon shaking it you know and and you could uh, the guys behind the x-wings shaking that you know and you could hear kenny baker inside r2d2 oh my god "Ah, come on let's get this shot (laughs) that's awesome it's hot in here (laughs) 
you know, Darth Vader still sounded like David Prowse. He's like, you were on any mercy mission this time. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. yet, and yet, you could say to yourself, something's going on here. This is better. They're doing something special. We, we left that place, Herb Lightman and I, and we looked at each other in the car and went, we're the only ones who know. <laughs> and then my mission became tell everyone. And of course, everyone in the world that I talked to said, you're on drugs <laughs> talking about you. What is your problem? <laughs> but it's a TIE fighter and it's a Millennium Falcon and there's a draw and a, and a droid. And they're like, <laughs> sit down and relax. <laughs> Did you did you have a feeling of I told you so once it became the smash hit that it became? I guess, but not. I was more so thrilled that I didn't need to do that. And it's funny because, you know, I mean, obviously you've seen the influences of different filmmakers on me in this movie. I saw Star Wars 28 times in its first 30 days of release at the theater. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. But then I saw Close Encounters. 34 times in its first 30 days of release. Wow. Which means there were two days where I saw it twice, you know? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, because that is my, that's my film, Close Encounters. 2001 is obviously incredibly formative and, and something that changed my world, obviously, from, from watching the movie. But Close Encounters hit me in a way that I can't quite explain in it. And it is to me, and I'm obviously Stephen's one of Stephen's biggest fans. And there are so many films he's done that are so incredible. And yet Close Encounters remains to this day, to me, standing as his towering achievement of who he is or was at the moment. To me, it feels like the most closely connected to his soul of any film he's ever made. Well, yeah, that's awesome to hear. And I was going to ask uh, about Spielberg because... The dude you got to play Spielberg in the movie, I mean, look, I've never met him, but if I could meet him, like, that's exactly how I picture Steven Spielberg, just from interviews and stuff. So tell me about that surreal process. Uh, uh, like, who was that guy? So when we decided <clears throat> that we needed to do that scene, because I, I waffled about that for a while, I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to go there, because Steven is kind of famous for not really like enjoying being portrayed. So I thought to myself, if I'm going to do this, I've got to portray him as closely as possible to what I really felt he was and what he looked like and, and felt like and, and, and the, the spirit of him, right? Couldn't be a caricature. It couldn't be an impersonation. And it didn't have to be his exact voice or his exact look, but the closer we could get, the better, right? So I sort of put out the word in, you know, Wadsworth and Gurney and Waukegan, Illinois, where we were shooting that we were looking for young Steven Spielberg. And I went into Caribou Coffee in Gurney, Illinois, uh, where I used to hang out with my visual effects supervisor and work on stuff. And one day I, this, this barista says, I hear you're looking for young Steven Spielberg. And I said, yeah, she goes, I got it. And I was like, okay, let's see. And she pulls a photograph out and hands it to me. And it's this kid. Well, it's not this kid. It's Steven. It's Steven Spielberg in his prom outfit with his date, right? And I thought, okay, that's very funny. You, you found some old Time magazine or some, you know, and you cut out the photo of Steven at prom and that's funny, right? And I, I said, okay, yeah, ha, ha, ha. And she goes, what? And I said, well, it's Steven at prom. I get it. And, and she goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> and suddenly I realized the paper was thick, not magazine thickness. And I turned it over and it said, Kodak, you know, photos by Kodak on the back, That's you know, amazing. and I was like, wait a minute, who is this? And, I, and she goes, it's my little brother. And I said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> and, and she goes, I'm serious. And then it suddenly hit me. Of course it could be because Stephen would never have gone to prom. And it's not because he couldn't go to prom. Of course he could get a date if he wanted. It was because why would he? He'd be too busy making movies. He wouldn't <laughs> spend point. money and time and effort on something so goofy when he could be out making movies, right? And I suddenly went, holy shit, it really is your brother. And I said, he's perfect. I mean, it looked exactly like the rip. And, and, and she said, well, that's too bad because he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> like, oh. and, 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 
She said, because he doesn't give a shit about Hollywood or acting or any of that. And I said, give me his phone number. I'm begging you. <laughs> so I called him and I spent like three hours talking him into doing it. Wow. And he's magnificent. Everybody I know, Doug Trumbull, who's no longer with us, but Doug and, 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 and Mark Stetson and Richard Urisich and all these old guard, you know, visual effects people who worked with Doug or worked with Stephen on Close Encounters and other films were like, did you get a time machine and kidnap him? And the reason it worked is that Kevin Stevens, who plays Stephen, he, he's not interested in film. He doesn't know anything about Stephen. He doesn't, right? But he's he was definitely inter- interested in sound recording and music recording. And he was really tuned in on the technology and the processes. And he, and so... I, I knew that if I could get him to understand that what Steven's talking about in the movie is just the same sort of thing, but visually instead of auditorially, he, that he would go for it, wow. that he would dive into it and speak it the way it should be. And he did. He got it. He, he grasped that and watched a lot of stuff of Steven talking about movies and stuff on you know YouTube and stuff like that. I think he's amazing in it. He just does a great job. I mean, yeah, I was blown away, so I can't believe that story. Or maybe I should, um, because I, you know, I'm familiar with another casting from a movie we'll talk about later. But that that's sensational. Speaking of Spielberg, really quickly, have you been able to catch the Fablemans? I hi, Stephen. <laughs> I haven't yet, and I've and it's because I've been so busy getting this film out there that sure. I, I never had a chance where I could just sit down of an evening, clear my decks and watch it the way it should be watched in my home theater, not on my iPhone, not on my computer. So I'm hoping either this weekend or this next coming week, when I get back from, I'm going on a trip for to scouts and locations for my next project. But when I get back, I want to sit down and watch it in a relaxed state, you know, cause I, I'm, of course I want to see it. I'm dying to see it, but I, but I want to see it when I'm calm and when I can relax and just enjoy it, you know? For sure. I mean, I only bring it up because I think it's such a great uh, companion piece for 52577. People keep saying that it should be a double bill, that it should just, mm. I mean, I had a joke quote where I, you know, people would say, well, what do you think about the Fablemans? And, I'd, and I would say, I just think it's incredibly moving that Steven would spend all that time and money making a prequel to my movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then great. the other one is, the other one was, uh, I'd love to see the Fablemans, but I don't have time. I have to get in the time machine I just built to go back to 2004 and start shooting the sequel. <laughs> and then the and then the final one is an uh, uh, homage to New Line and to Roger Corman, uh, who famously, I don't know if you've ever seen this, it's worth looking up. When, when Stephen was finishing up uh, Jurassic Park, just ahead of Jurassic Park came a little film called Carnosaur <laughs> by Roger Corman at New Line. And Roger was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And, and Johnny goes, well, don't you think uh, Stephen's going to be a little upset about you copying his, uh, his film? And <laughs> Roger famously goes, if you see just one dinosaur movie this year, it should probably be Jurassic Park. <laughs> But if you see two, <laughs> and that was my other one that I did with the Fablemans, and you know, it's it's weird because I didn't know anything about the Fablemans until we were we were long done and had just launched our film. You know, I I, I never knew that Stephen was going to do something. He kept it under wraps. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And of course, there's all these people online that are going, well, look at Johnson going in there and at the last minute making him <laughs> in, in three months, you know. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. man. And, but they're not competitive. It, I do think, and I've heard from a lot of people that they're really complimentary, that they, that they sort of echo each other in back and forth. So I'm really excited to see his film. Yeah, I 100% agree with that assessment. Uh, quickly on Corman, I, I always laugh because any podcast I do uh, of all like the film stuff, so this is High School Slumber Party, we talk, you know, teen films and, and such. But, you know, I host a couple other podcasts and I guess some podcasts and the thread that weaves all film, it seems, is Roger Corman. It, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, so uh, again, I love when he's brought up because it's, yeah. it feels like it's every time. But uh, it's wonderful, yeah. Uh, your film, I mean, 
that was going to be my next question. Seemed like a very long process to complete it. Uh, so 2004 you started, you mentioned? Yeah, I started writing in 1999. Didn't get financing until 2003. Started shooting in 2004. Shot the first 75% of the movie, all the stuff that take, takes place in Lake County, Illinois, for $120,000. All in. Wow. Then the initial financier kind of disappeared and we didn't have the money to shoot the Hollywood thing. So we had this 120 minute movie that had basically 40 minutes of Illinois, 40 minutes of Illinois at the back. And in the middle, the longest slug line in the history of movies, Pat goes to Hollywood for 30, 40 minutes. And we cut it all together and ran around trying to find finance financing. And we finally found a guy named Jim McLean who loved it so much. He said, what do you need? And by that time to get everybody back and to do all the effects and to get everything done. And it's two years later, we needed about $750,000. And, wow. and he said, okay. And he wrote the check. That's awesome. So we did that. And then we sort of cut that all together. And then we had this wonderful movie that people really liked, but we had what should have been $2 million worth of songs that we'd gotten thanks to Alan Parsons and, and my music supervisor, Sean Fernald, and my relationship with Universal and Michael Peterson, who was the head of legal affairs at Universal Music. We got licenses for all of that $2 million worth of music for about 200000 but well, no one would pay for it. They kept saying, just put sound alikes in or just take the songs out or put some other score in. And I kept saying, no, this is integral to the telling of the story and people are like look you're never going to get it you're you can't afford it and they wouldn't pay for it they wouldn't pay for it and for years i mean literally almost a decade i couldn't get anyone to pay for the music and i wasn't willing to finish the film without the music and thankfully my investors were all like no we get it that's awesome when you get it done you get it done they believed in it that much. And then Alan Parsons and David Russo, our, our you know, composer and all the people, everybody that sort of jumped in to help, we got those licenses. And then finally, uh, Eric Wilkinson at MVD, who had been chasing, chasing the film since he first saw it at Star Wars Cel Celebration 4 in 2008 or 9, and said, you know, can I have this movie? I'd like to release. And I said, do you have $200,000 for the music? And he's like, nope. <laughs> and every year he'd call up, can I have the movie? Do you have the music money? Nope. And then finally in 2020, he called up and he said, uh, can I have the movie? I said, Eric. And he goes, I've got the money. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've convinced the head of the company to pay for your music budget. And they did. And on top of that, paid for a final sound mix and, and more visual effects and all, kind, you know, all kinds of wonderful extras. Uh, they just completely supported me, gave me complete control over it, gave me, I mean, the most support I've ever had, ever, from any studio, any producers, ever. And that's why we have this film. That is so cool. I love hearing that. I, I'm someone who, I love movie soundtracks. Um, you can see my record collection back here. Oh, yeah. The majority... <clears throat> Our soundtracks and yeah, I'm proudly displaying my Angus. Because Is that, that vinyl? Is that vinyl? Yeah. Angus on vinyl right here. Whoa! Wow! Uh, yeah, this is that's a good soundtrack. I'm really clear, proud of that. Your vinyl too. Yeah, that's so a, uh, <laughs> yeah, that is a cool soundtrack. Hearing it was about the music was quite literally music to my ears. So that's awesome. So yeah, I, I was so curious about that process. I mean, what was it like just sitting on this for all those years, just waiting well, for that I moment? Mean, the hardest part was that the people were like, oh, it must suck. Or, oh. or you know, what's the, what's his problem? You know, why doesn't he just, you, a, a lot of people thought it was just me going, oh, I just, I'm not sure. Oh, I can't, uh, I wanted this thing out, you know, the year it was made, you know, I it wasn't, but I also wanted the right version out. And I, I, and I got to be honest, the delays and the, and the, the problems and, and the limitations allowed me enough time to simmer it and watch it over and over and finally realize 
maybe even just a couple of years ago, what the premise of the film was, not what the plot was, not what the story was, but the premise, what is the, and it's something integral to great movies, or well, I'm not saying it's a great movie, but any good movie should know what its premise is. And I don't think I knew until maybe just a couple of years ago, I knew what the story was. I knew what the plot was, but I didn't know the point. I didn't know the reason for the movie what it was trying to say, right? And I'm not going to articulate what it's trying to say because I don't want to influence people watching it. But there are critics who think they're being really harsh with me sometimes that are just barely getting the actual truth of what I was trying to say. And they're closer than people who are just like, oh my God, it's my favorite movie of all time. It's amazing and there's nothing wrong with it. There are people who are saying things that they think some of them are trolls and they think they're you know pouring hot oil for me from the parapets of the castle and instead i'm like thank you i you almost got what i was going for i don't want to say much more than that because i don't want to spoil it not only for people who haven't seen it but even for people who have because if you watch it enough and you really watch it you'll understand that it's not about some, you know, poor put upon kid who finally makes it good and makes it to Hollywood. That's not what it's about at all. I mean, it feels like it might be, but it's not. Wow, I'm going to need to do a rewatch. I want to get this question <laughs> right. So that that's awesome, though. You know, I love hearing that. So were you? Um, I guess are you satisfied with uh, the reaction for, for people who've seen it? Very. I mean, we're 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm mean, hope oh, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from the critics, and I think it's 87 or 89% or something with the audiences. The funny thing is, is we've only got like 50 reviews from audience members. So one review can take you down like two percentage points, you know, whereas, you know, people like Stephen and the Fablemans, you know, they've got thousands of reviews. So okay. if somebody comes in and says, I hated it, it doesn't do a thing to the rating, you know, so... But I'm I am I'm very satisfied. I've gotten so many wonderful responses from people from all over the world, by the way. That's one of the things I really like is that I'm, you know, I've got friends in Northern England and, and Japan and Russia and South America and, and all over the globe who are like, you know, wow, how did you know what it was like to be a teenager in my part of the world? And I was like, I don't. I know what it's like to be a teenager. You know, I know what it's like to love movies. I don't know what it's like to be a teenager in Lapland, you know, or Tokyo, but I do know what it's like to be a teenager. And maybe that says something that you found my interpretation close to your heart, you know? Look, I was always going to be an easy person to please because I love uh, that universal kind of teenage story of growing up. And I love film, obviously, so it married both those things. But, you know, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a special story in that way because of the universality. Even though <laughs> you had the unique Star Wars experience, but there are, such, there are so many other things there. Again, I don't want to give away too much of the movie either because I really do want people to um, watch it. And I, I have recommended it a lot. I will say my favorite relationship by far... Um, in the film is I was gonna say I, Patrick and his mother the the I mean the actor you got to play the mother was amazing and um, how close was that to your relationship actually with your mother and um, yeah can you speak absolutely more exactly right and and Colleen nailed it Colleen Camp originally it was going to be uh, Carrie Fisher oh wow you know, Gary Kurtz and Fred Roos talked to her, talked to her, sent her the script. She loved it. She and I had a bunch of conversations, but the timing didn't work and it just never, never materialized. And in the end, we realized that we probably dodged a bullet, even though we loved Carrie and we all love Carrie. And I really liked her as a human being and we had great conversations. But if for one minute, anybody in the audience went, this is a stunt, this is a satire, it would have undercut. I mean, Mark Hamill was going to do a part in the film as well, a little wow. cameo. And he said he'd be happy to do it. But it, he begged us to ask ourselves whether or not his face appearing in the movie would take the audience out, out of what he thought was a really sort of truthful, lovely, real story and turn it into parody. And he was right. You know, he was absolutely right. So 
that scene didn't end up in the film anyway. So it would have been, we would have shot it and cut him out of the movie. So, um, <laughs> but, but no, Colleen uh, met my mother who was still alive then. And, and she nailed it. I mean, that uh, my, my mom famously said to me when she saw the film, she goes, I was never that loud. And I, my siblings and I said, that's true. You were louder. <laughs> but, but she, uh, no, Colleen did just a magnificent job with that part. And then, um, you know, what, what was it like, I guess, seeing, I, I know you put the story together, but once you saw, like, I guess, uh, you know, some of the final cuts or that final product, something so true to your life just on screen like that. I mean, I, I could imagine, for me, it would be super surreal, even if I was the one making it. You know, it's interesting because when I was directing it, I decided very early on that I was not going to treat the character of Pat Johnson as me. I was going to treat the character of Pat Johnson for the benefit of the actor, for John, yeah, and for my benefit and for everyone else's benefit. It wasn't going to be me going, well, wait, see what I would have done or <laughs> because I'm not that kid, that kid, if you believe in quantum mechanics still lives back in 1976 and 77 still there experiencing this very thing and would no more recognize or fit into this body, into this head than would Grogu. I mean, you know, in other words, he, if he saw me or talked to me or had to live in what's left of his body, he would freak out. And I realized it wasn't fair to that character or to the actor or to me to be too familiar. I had to treat the character as a separate person who quantum mechanically exists back in 1977, who has no idea and may or may not become this guy, right? It was the only way to do it fairly. It was the only way to do it honestly. It was the only way to make the character not some put upon but heroic young dude, but just a kid freaked out by life and hurt by pain and looking for a way out and, and suddenly given this exit door that he can either take or not, you know, um, you know, would I take it now at age 60? Probably. I don't know. Maybe not. But at that age, at that time, that's a different person. So I had to treat that person that way. And luckily for me, John Francis Daly inhabited the character so brilliantly. I mean, he, we didn't have any time together. We only met two days before shooting. Wow. That was going to be another question of mine. Wow. Yeah. Well, there was another young, very, very, very famous actor who was no longer, he was a child actor who is now in his all teeth and elbows stage of, of uh, taming the lions of Hollywood um, <laughs> who was going to do the role. And then two days well, five days before shooting, his parents called up and said, he wants half, we want half the profits. Whoa. And we said, well, are you putting in half the money? They're like, no. And they said, well, we're not going to give you half the profits. And they said, well, then he's not showing up. So suddenly five days before shooting, we don't have an actor. Oh my goodness. Um, independent film, which means we're going to shut down, which means we'll never start up again. But luckily, Cat uh, White, our, our uh, um, extras casting director, said, well, what about John Francis Daly? And I said, Sam Weir? He's not. <laughs> He's this little... She goes, that was 10 years ago. I was like, oh. So they send his headshot. We realize we're going to have to wig him because he does, he's got this curly, what, what John likes to call his Jufro. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, but he's a great actor and, and he wants to do it. And we're three days away from shooting. Yes. So they put him on a plane. He came back. And he, I met him at his wardrobe fitting, you know, the night before shooting or two days before shooting. And we got along famously. And the thing that John did that was so beautiful was that while most of the rest of the cast were young actors, but they were young, fairly inexperienced actors. And they were young. They were young people. And when we, between shots, they were going to go off and just hang out and, you know, play the guitar and have a cigarette and, you know, goof around. John would like stick around. He was a little older and he was certainly more experienced and he would stick around. And I didn't know this till later, but people told me, and then I saw it in dailies, which I, well, I didn't see dailies. I didn't really see any of the footage till I got back to the editing room at the end of the movie. Wow. And I started seeing him doing things that I do on a daily basis. Oh, wow. So what he was doing is he was, he was on set, just watching me direct other people or talk to the crew or whatever. And he was just 
cataloging and pulling in pieces of me that he could put into his performance, which people started seeing when they were watching edited footage going, dude, that's you from high school. That's exactly what you used to do. Well, it's because I still do it. And John saw it and he put it in. And it just added to this wonderful truth for him uh, of playing the character and for me of seeing what I was looking for in the performance to then cut into the film. That's amazing. I, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was really profound, you know, because he didn't have to take, I mean, he, I mean, it was a tiny little movie. He could have, you know, gone to the craft service table, gotten a donut and gone to his trailer, but he didn't do that. Especially, especially like coming on so last minute like that. that that's amazing. No, he, he dug in completely and did a, just a beautiful job right, on, on that performance. So what, what has the reaction been of, I guess, cast and crew who worked on it, you know, so many moons ago and now finally they can sit at home and watch it on VOD? You know, some we lost a couple, you know, um, Justin Mentel tragically died not terribly long after making the movie and, you know, who plays Tony. Yeah, I read he that. was an amazing actor and a wonderful person. And uh, but his mom loves it, and she's very appreciative of. I mean, it was a big deal for him, and he put everything he had into it. You know, Katie Jeep likes it, but she's a mom with two kids right now, and you know, she's like, "Yeah, great, I'm in a movie, okay." <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in that. Way. She's just got a, you know a life that it, you know, um, Gwen Kimak who. Uh, plays Jody my sister is you know she's a mom of a couple of kids now too but she but a lot but all of them kept continued to work over the 18 years I mean Gwen did uh final ADR and uh some performance you know some off-camera lines for me two weeks before I finished the final mix of the film back in September October so you know she went you know wow. she gets to bed went to the garage and recorded some lines you know I know John John hasn't seen it yet. He just got the Blu-ray, I think, a week ago. And so he's finishing up Dungeons and Dragons. So he hasn't even seen the final version, but he's excited. I just got a, a you know, post from her, a, a text from him saying, I got it. I can't wait to watch it. You know, you know, everybody, my, my kids, you know, my, my uh, second offspring, Lonnie, uh, plays me as a, as a young boy watching 2001 Space Odyssey. So they had to get their hair their long girl hair cut off when they were still Merrick Johnson and they had to, you know, wear boy clothes and, and play me in that sequence. And I play my own dad and, you know, and they love it. They're just sort of like, wow, that was a lifetime ago. You know, yeah, I don't know. It's been pretty profound because everybody involved has, has stayed involved. Were there people that sometimes said, dude, just put it down, walk away. It's okay. You tried. Sure. Uh, mostly not on the team, mostly people outside. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, it's like, well, I can't. I mean, it's not just because I got to prove myself. It's that I made a promise, you know, to the investors and to the actors and to my kids and to the people that let us use their houses and the crew. And, you know, I, I said I'd do this and I promised I'd finish it. So, I got, you know, I'm not going to let those people down. I don't want to walk around with my head in my hands going, I'm sorry, guys. Well, I'm sure uh, during that period, there were some people who doubted it would get finished. So oh, again, for sure. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. But, and and why wouldn't you? I mean, of course, you know, and I don't blame them, but but they, they didn't quite count on the fact that I have my mom's uh, genes in me. She, you know, she, she could, she was unstoppable. There are stories that will be told later of other things she did in her life that you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Just from the uh, character's portrayal of your mother here? I mean, I believe it. <laughs> oh, another note I wanted to just make is that I, I kind of giggled. I did a little research um, before watching, but I didn't want to spoil anything. I had kind of giggled about uh, all the unfinished films or like the films that took you a while in the movie we're talking about and then like how that kind of mirrored what actually happened in real life like uh, and you couldn't have predicted that so I, I just think that's so funny <laughs> yeah those were yeah and they you know none of them did get and the only one that got finished was requiem for the planet of the apes and then after all of that it was lost in an accident that i'll put in a book <sighs> today the whole because in those days there was no negative there was no tape there were no hard drives there was the reversal film that you shot 
it got processed, you cut it together and that's it. And if you ever lost that original, there's no like, oh, go back to the negative. It's a good story, but I'll put it in the book. <laughs> yeah, because I was that was going to be another question I was going to ask. Like, do you have any of those movies still? But uh, that's a shame. In fact, that's all just... the all the Planet of the Apes moments at the beginning of the film are recreations of my Super Eight Planet of the Apes movies made with my my kids and and my actual Super Eight movie camera and actual Super Eight movie film from Kodak, which we use to to you know. You know, we, my my ex-wife and I created the ape masks and we dressed everybody up and went out to a cornfield and, and shot the movie again, you know. That must have been so fun. It was really fun. And it worked out so well that people thought for sure that it was the original footage, so. Very cool, very cool. Uh, do you mind if I uh, sort of rapid fire you some questions about some, some of your other work? Absolutely. So, because I want to start with Angus, because uh, we had, uh, again, a while ago now, but uh, we had Charlie Talbert on the show. Such a nice guy. Always love to give him a shout out. Well, Charlie actually was my first AD for one of the re- or, uh, the reshoot days that we did down on Genesee Street for people cruising, you know, scooping the loop in their oh, really? cars. Yeah. He drove up from New Orleans and brought himself and his attitude and his, 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 his good work ethic and said, I'll AD it for you, you know, and, and that's what he did. You know, I mean, I mean that's why at the end of the movie there, his credit is, you know, for uh, first AD Genesee theater unit or whatever, Charlie Talbert. Yes. That Charlie Talbert. You know? Oh, I didn't catch that. That is so cool. I got to like uh, freeze frame that, um, you know, such a nice guy. He did a, cu- a couple other episodes with us too, just for fun, uh, you know, to, talking movies you know yeah great guy one of, the, one of the greatest guys i've ever worked with and we're you know listen i don't know if he told you but we're we've been contemplating a, a sequel um oh. maybe even a series based on angus so uh news to me all. yeah oh. <laughs> very cool i mean breaking news for i guess a lot of our listeners i mean uh, angus is one of the films i get asked the most questions like hey did you cover angus um, which was surprising because I didn't see Angus growing up, but it, uh, one of one of our guests, uh, Kate Hudson, was like, "How have you not seen Angus?" And I'm like, "It really wasn't available." Kate I, Hudson I heard... said this. No, not that Kate Hudson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? Sorry. Sorry. Um, and, Hello, and she... Kate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, we couldn't find it for a while, and then one day she just dropped me the news: "Hey, Angus is available on streaming. Watch it." So. I did, loved it, and, um, you know, one thing led to another. We had Charlie on, and he told a story of his casting in that film. So I wanted to, I kind of wanted to get it from your perspective, because it was honestly one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard. So I'm working on this movie, and I'm, I'm in L.A., and we're, we're bringing in every heavy set actor kid that they can find. And they're either actors who are <laughs> acting... And they're terrible because they're acting uh, and they happen to be heavy or they're really heavy and they can't act to save their lives. They're just kids that have been thrown in front of the spotlight because they're heavy. Right. And it's not working. And and we're doing a nationwide search. And suddenly, you know, the producer, Don Steele, says, let's go to New York. There's a bunch of people we need to see. Plus, we get to we're going to go interview, you know, Debbie Harry to maybe play the mom or whatever. And I'm like, OK, I want to meet Debbie Harry. So we go to New York and we have a bunch of casting sessions there. We meet a bunch of more, you know, a bunch more, you know, heavy actors. And, uh, you know, none of them are natural or real and they're not what we're looking for in the, in the lease, at least not what I'm looking for. So I'm getting a little depressed and um, vectoring home to LA from New York. I decide to change my flight to stop in Chicago so I can go see my folks and my brother and sister and just go, you know, just chill out in Wadsworth, Illinois population 750. And uh, on my way from the airport at like 11 o'clock at night, I stop at the what's called the Lake Forest Oasis. And they have these things over the 90, the 94 freeway called oasises and what they are there's like big prefab well not prefab but these big architecturally cool kind of buildings that span across the freeway and you can get off at exits on either side and inside are all these restaurants and coffee shops and a place to you know restrooms and that kind of stuff and so this is like a tradition you stop there on the way home right so i i, I decided to stop and go to the wendy's and get a, a burger and a coke or something and 
as I trundle up to the, the line, there's a line and it's like 11 o'clock at night. And there's like a line of like 20 people. And I'm like, what the, you know, this is ridiculous. And because, you know, Lake Forest, Illinois at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night, in the middle of nothing, that oasis should be empty, right? So I'm like, why is there a line? And I see there's, there's all the girls that are working behind the counter are all gathered around one register and they're all laughing and giggling. And, and there's this big guy standing there with his back to me, like telling a story or a joke or something. And they're all just like, <laughs> and they're all just loving this guy. And I'm thinking, wait, there's no way this is happening. And I kind of sidle my way around to the counter and look down and this kid's like, maybe, maybe he's 16. Right. And he's, yeah, he's heavy, but he's good looking and funny and the girls are loving him and the line doesn't even seem mad. They're like, that's pretty funny. What do you say? I mean, everyone's entertained by this guy. Right. And I'm like, finally, I, I just, he's getting his food and his, and his buddies are waiting for him. And I just walk right up to the front of the line. I said, Hey, you want to be in a movie? Amazing. And he looks at me and he goes, what kind of movie? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Oh no. Oh wait, no, no. A movie movie. Like, and I had a card that said, you know, you know, new line pictures, Patrick Johns, you know, director. Yeah. I said, listen, take this call this number on the back of a casting director, the major casting director in Chicago. Jane Alderman and just, you know, tell her that you'd like to come in to be put on tape for this role. And he's like, okay, uh, <laughs> sure. And I thought, okay, I freaked the kid out, you know? So I went, <laughs> next day I get a call from Jane and Jane says, Oh my God, the kid you sent, wait till you see the tape. And she sends me the tape and he's amazing and I just called Dawn in Los Angeles and said, Dawn, I think we found our guy. And she's like, oh, come on. You didn't find him at some Wendy's in the middle of nowhere. We, we, we'll, we'll keep looking. I'm like, no, watch the tape. She watched the tape and she goes, you found the guy. That's amazing. That Again, just to hear it from both sides, it just yeah. like kismet. That stuff doesn't happen, <laughs> but it seems to happen to you. <laughs> yeah. well, my, I have been incredibly fortunate I, I won't disavow the fact that i've worked my ass off because i have and i and i want everybody out there especially you know my students and stuff to know that it is it's more hard work than it is anything else and it's it's a commitment to never quitting it's and it's what ray bradbury said jump build your wings on the way down the only people i know who've never made it in filmmaking are those who stopped or quit wow everybody else just didn't quit no matter, no matter how long it took. It might take a year. It might take 20. If you quit at 19, you'll never know. That's amazing advice. I think a lot of people are going to like hearing that. Back to Angus. Are you feeling this revival? Like, because it's, like I said, it's been something people are mentioning a lot to me. Uh, I, I don't know. Is it like I have not to felt you? it yet, but okay. I'm really glad to hear about it because <laughs> I believe there's a beautiful beautiful sequel to be made that upends everything you know about Angus and about the world he lives in and about the world we're now living in compared to when he was going through his struggle. It's essentially about Angus having a kid who's a really talented athlete, who's not particularly smart, who's getting destroyed and picked on by the nerds and the geeks. Yeah. I mean, I, I... the modern school that can happen. hundred percent. 100%. I mean, I can't wait. You got me so excited uh, for it. Amazing. Please make it. And and don't take as long as this film. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. I won't live that long. So, <laughs> <laughs> so believe it or not, the uh, while doing the research, I realized the first film I actually saw of yours, um, I was a child, but it was Baby's Day Out, which I loved. I have not revisited since I was a child, but I remember loving it as a kid. John Hughes worked on that, right? Well, like, he wrote it. He wrote it, yeah. So, look, this is High School Slumber Party. We talk a lot of John Hughes here. What was it like, you know, working on a John Hughes project? Wow. Um, that's a whole... You know what? You know what would be fun? If you're into it, I would love to save this for... If you want to do another night and really dig into it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we can just do a whole John Hughes retrospective. How about that? Because, you know, I was the original director of Dennis the Menace. 
Wow. I didn't know that. And, and then John fired me and then rehired me for Baby's Day Out. I mean, look, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps with this idea. Please, let's do that. So, so if that's the case, let's continue this conversation. Uh, but I want everyone out there to watch 52577. Please, please, and review it if you like it. If you don't like it, <laughs> you ever saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Patrick Reed Johnson, for coming on. Thank you, Ryan Stick, for hooking us up. Yeah, uh, and then yeah, pleasure. A lot of fun talking to you. And I really, I will come back and we'll do a whole episode about that, which actually has to do with other uh, two other projects that are coming up. Um, there are two sequels that might happen to 52577. There's 52590, The Empire Strikes Pat, which <laughs> is about my time in Hollywood. And then there's 52504, Return of the Alumni, which is about my high school friends and my Hollywood friends coming together in Wadsworth, Illinois to make 52577. That's awesome. So let's connect again, Patrick. Right. Really, really appreciate it. I look it. forward to it. Wow, what a tease. Patrick Reed Johnson, so amazing. You could tell what makes him such a successful director. Definitely, definitely, once again, watch 52577. Hopefully he comes back and tells those John Hughes stories and shares with us some of those future projects he talked about. Oh my God, are we going to get an Angus too? I hope so. By the way, I have another show that I host with Mike Manzi called... Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar, where we talked the films of Francis Ford Coppola. And we talked a lot of Charlie Talbert today, because of course he was the star of Angus. Did you know that he is in the new Francis Ford Coppola film, Megalopolis? Can't wait for that one. Maybe we can get Charlie on again, or at least on that show, to talk about that. Ugh, so much anticipation. Thank you once again for listening to this one. Thank you again for always being a true supporter of High School Slumber Party out there. Check out High School Slumber Party AP as well with our co-host Islan Addington. And stay tuned to this feed for more episodes to come. I promise you that. We already have some recorded, so it won't be as long as a break before the next episode. I can promise you that. <sighs> Getting a little tired. Going to crawl into that old sleeping bag. And hit the hay. Oh, one last thing. Remember, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop looking around once in a while, you could miss it. Later, friends.